if you know enough as a technician, when you do finally hire somebody, you'll know if they're BSing. If you're first time hiring a video editor, you know nothing about video editing and you hire a guy and he's like trash at video editing, but he convinced you that he was good because you didn't know what good was. Sure. But that could happen to anybody in any business. So you should clean your own toilets for a while. You should text your guests for a while. You should change your prices on your own for a while. Like just really become a student of the game and do it yourself. And that actually makes you the most price competitive person on the planet. You don't have cleaning fee if you didn't want to because you're cleaning it yourself. So your cost of turnover is your time. And that, that makes you scrappy and that makes you smart. Everybody wanna get the bag, but y'all really know what it's gonna take. Trying to figure out how to start now. Blue gels, gotta show you the way. Cause we stop violence and emotizing and anything it takes to get in the state. We've been grinding all day, finding ways to get paid. Better hop on this wave, cause we're dropping blue gems. JB dropping blue gems. AG dropping blue gems. New podcast, baby, tune in. We in this thing dropping blue gems. Another episode of Blue Gems Podcast. Let's, Let's go. go. We are actually out here in Houston, Texas with Sean Rocky Cheech. What's up, guys? The man. I mean, everybody knows him. We don't even need to have an introduction, but tell us a little bit about you for the listeners that hadn't heard about your story yet. Well, thanks for having me on Blue Gems. It's going to be fun. I'm a short-term rental guy. I got about 120 doors, 10 different cities. I've been doing short-term rentals Airbnb for like seven years now, and I've been YouTubing it, how to do it for five. Amazing. Amazing. So you have 120 doors. They're all arbitrage. Mm -hmm. Why not purchase? Ah, so my soapbox, one more time. I like the soapboxes. And I'm probably just, let me get right to the math of it. To do an arbitrage play, like to get a landlord to let you do Airbnb, it can cost maybe five or $6,000 for an apartment, right? You get the debt, like the, what's the word? Security deposit, first month's rent, stuff like that. Like lease activation costs. You can get lease activation down to like $1,500 like upfront or less sometimes. So we get landlords that give us no security deposit deals, only prorated first month's rent, stuff like that. So total cost to get an apartment to the landlord could be 1500 bucks or less. And then the cost of furniture for a studio or one bedroom might be four or $5,000, all this stuff, including like your forks, knives, plates, furniture. So for about six grand, you can get to do one property. And it's the same amount of money every door you do. So if you do a hundred doors, there's six grand per door. But if you're buying property, you could get like first FHA and then a second home loan and stuff like that. So you got some cheaper financing, but then when you get your third, fourth, fifth, 10th property, you have to put down at least 20%, right? And so that 20% down on a four bedroom house, you might be looking at a $100,000 to get that one property started, right? Because your down payment and the furniture. If I rented a four bedroom house from a landlord instead of buying it, I could probably get it done for less than 25,000. So I can have four doors per one renting versus buying. And then at the end of the day, because of that, oh, an arbitrage person, yeah, they might make a little less money because their rent is higher than the landlord's mortgage and the landlord gets the debt pay down. So a landlord might make $10,000 cash flow and debt pay down on that house where I might only make like say $7,000 per house, total cash profit. But now I do that times four. So a landlord's making 10,000 a month, including his mortgage, and I'm making 28,000 a month. So long story short, or short story long, rental arbitrage just makes more money than owning. Now, what about the passive component to that, right? So the counter argument could be that if you own, one day you can exit the operations, hire a property manager, and then collect passive income. I would say that there are all sorts of companies that gone public that are passive now for people, right? People really don't consider small businesses to be assets for some reason. It's like a really weird thing. If you consider, like nothing is actually really passive until you pay somebody to make it passive. So a person who owns a property probably has a co-host to do Airbnb, to do short-term rentals, right? And a co-host will charge you 20 or 25% of your revenue. So in my example, where an owner with a four-bedroom house is making 10,000 cash flow and debt pay down, well, if he paid a co-host 25% of his revenue, now he's actually making less than me. 
because 25% went to somebody else first per door. So to make it passive for that guy, now he's actually only making like 6,500 or 6,000 cash flow and debt pay down. So to go passive is to like actually soak up a lot of that profit. So being a homeowner who's ha- who has a co-host not only now makes you the worst play on the planet compared to the other ones in short-term rentals, being a short-term rental operator is still better than being a long-term landlord, it's, but it's still the worst version of it. Co-hosts make the most money dollar for dollar because they don't pay a single dollar rent, right? They don't have to pay a mortgage. They can just get nothing but cash. Then self operating owners make the most money after that because they get the debt pay down and they get all that stuff. Then arbitrage players make money after that because their rents are higher than the mortgage. But then owners who hire co-hosts, they're like the bottom of the of the ladder there. And so to get back to the real question about passive income is if you build a business to scale, like I have 120 doors, I haven't worked in a year. Um, Haley runs the business. She makes 125K. And then I got another guy named Jason who's got like 75K plus bonuses and he does our acquisition. So Jason goes, gets the doors. Haley runs them. And so for that 200,000-ish dollars a year, I've got a growing business. And then she has managers under her, guest experience, housekeepers, stuff like that. So it is now for me passive, like truly passive, as if I was a landlord with property managers. So you can do it with arbitrage. And now also the thing that I think a lot of people don't consider is, yeah, instead of having $2 million of home equity, like hard asset value, we have a $25 million or $30 million business, right? So if I wanted to share, like sell shares of my company or sell a stake, I guarantee if I put it on Facebook, hey, who wants to buy a piece of my company? Somebody would write me a check. No brainer, for sure. I think too many people discount that a path to wealth can be building a business. I mean, Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, Warren Buffett. I mean, Warren Buffett did like make a lot of money in real estate too, but think about it, these mega dudes, they made money building a business and cashing out in the business. You're basically all the way automated now. You're mm-hmm. hands off. What type of software have you implemented in your business? Software companies hate me because we don't use them. This is like a very time-sensitive matter. Airbnb just changed their API. So a lot of softwares are getting their butts kicked. I don't know if you guys have software that got locked out. They had to redo stuff. If I named a single software, people would go, oh, he's talking trash about that one software, but it happened to everybody. So we use Wheelhouse for our pricing automation for most of it, but we still manually price over the top. And if we didn't have people manually doing prices, when Airbnb's API just like dumped, we would have been like, we're like, what do we do, right? We don't know how to do our own price. Wheelhouse has always done it. We actually build on people first. And then if we have a person who needs to get more done, we can use a technology to increase their efficacy or reach, but that's it. So we just use HostHub for calendar connection now because it's really simple. We were using Hostfully before the API situation and we actually had to pull that because there's just too much going on, too much breaking. We got locked out of Verbo because of that connection. I'm not really going to say it's like Hostfully's fault that things like happen. But at that point, we realized that there's so many risky components to trying to, to try to create a small incremental increase of automation through tech like everything to break because a lot of people in the space, we're not, we're not tech people, right? right? So it's like giving a caveman a gun. He doesn't know how the gun works. And so now he's, he can hurt somebody, right? So if you use technology without knowing really how the technology works on the inside, you can actually hurt your business. So we run on completely people is our thing. And then if we choose to use a software like for calendar connection, like HostHub, we took the, pick the most basic thing we can find. And with, with Wheelhouse, obviously we built Wheelhouse to do what we told it to do. Its algorithm runs its up and down stuff. But aside from that, we actually like retrofitted over over the top of Wheelhouse's AI, our pricing strategy, it runs our strategy inside a Wheelhouse and then we watch it, monitor it from there. So it's still very much human touch and I think that's the big thing that I'm trying to share. So a lot of our listeners are going to be beginners, right? One, two, maybe three, four doors. Mm-hmm. They're not going to be able to afford to hire someone in their business. So what would you say to them to be able to systematize their business without using softwares and without using people? I would say do it yourself, first off, right? Um, have you guys read the E-Myth book? 
Yep. Yes. Yeah. The whole technician, manager, entrepreneur thing. Everybody should start as a technician because if you know enough as a technician, when you do finally hire somebody, you'll know if they're BSing you, right? Like your first time hiring a video editor, you know nothing about video editing and you hire a guy and he's like trash at video editing, <laughs> but he convinced you that he was good because you didn't know what good was. Sure. But that could happen to anybody in any business. So you should clean your own toilets for a while. You should text your guests, you know, for a while. You should change your prices on your own for a while. Like just really become a student of the game and do it yourself. And that actually makes you the most price competitive person on the planet. You don't have cleaning if you didn't want to, because you're cleaning it yourself, right? So your cost of turnover is your time. And that, that makes you scrappy and that makes you smart. And then at that point, you pick up one door, it becomes five doors and you can hire a housekeeper by the hour at five doors. I think that's like the in incremental growth starts with hiring your first housekeeper. That's probably the first part of scale. And then you keep growing to five, 10, 15 doors and about every five apartments or every three houses or two houses, you're going to make a housekeeper hire and you're going to give them like a, a, a part-time pseudo full-time amount of hours. Like if you can give them 15 hours a week, that's probably good for a housekeeper. And you just hire one housekeeper like every five apartments you get. At one point, you'll have enough doors and enough housekeepers that you'll probably want to hire somebody to manage those housekeepers or supervise them. You don't need a software until, man, we we just built, actually, we it mo maybe it's more so because of the YouTube channel, but we hit 100 doors before we went multi-channel. We were just on Airbnb. So we didn't have calendar management, nothing. We just used the Airbnb software up to 100 doors. Wow. Yeah. And we use GroupMe. You know, like it's like mm -hmm. a Slack or Discord. We use that for our housekeeper chat where they upload photos. We just used a free chat thing. We use TimeStation, which is another free software to track their hours. Now that we're big enough, we use something called Connect Team, which is basically like, like a group me and TimeStation combined that we, people can clock in and clock out, request time off, and they can upload photos and chat in one thing. So it costs a little bit of money and we could still be using free softwares, but we decided let's just have one and we'll, we're willing to pay for it now, but we could still be running say 200 doors off of group me if we wanted to. Wow. Because you can keep it simple. Yeah, I'm sure that'll be controversial in the community because everyone wants to buy everything right off, right off the bat, right? So they get one door, they're going to be on Hospitable, they're going to be on all the PMS systems, they're going to be on Price Labs with one door. You're saying do it yourself, learn, and then go and hire, then start to outsource, then start to scale. Now, how long did you in particular wait before you hired your first person after that first door? Well, I was up to about 30 people like 30 doors before I considered hiring my own housekeepers. This is something I came to learn later. And to really speaking to that person who's like, I want to have softwares and stuff at one door. It's like being a munchkin in The Wizard of Oz, right? The great wizard are on the other side of this curtain. That's you kind of look up to all the software stack as like the great wizard. And it's just some crouchy old man behind the curtain. The stuff isn't as cool as they say it is, is really the truth. They help, right? But you need to have like this executive mind by the time you start using softwares. Because you should be interviewing the software companies. What exactly do you do? And at what cost? Like, what else can I not do? Like, for example, um, with Wheelhouse, we turn it on for 30 minutes and then we shut it off every day. Because while we help Wheelhouse is active, we can't use rule sets. And rule sets are a very specific part of our pricing strategy. So we go into Airbnb and we add our rule sets. So every day that we turn Wheelhouse on, it wipes off our rule sets. So then we have to turn it back off. Now that it updated prices, go back to Airbnb, re-add our rule sets every day. It's a daily process. And that's Airbnb's API. Now imagine you're somebody with one door, two doors, and you know nothing about how Airbnb's API works, not anything about how Wheelhouse works or how Housefully or the guesty does anything and something breaks, that, 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 that can put you down. You're like hands are tied to your software. Like I don't know how to do my own business. And you're so dependent on the Wizard of Oz to run it for you. And that's why I really caution, caution against it. Yeah, I mean, your pricing strategy is probably the top notch across all content creations. You're using rule sets. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? 
I normally don't talk about it in public, right? I think I said that yesterday, um, but I gave like three examples. We have about a dozen solid rule sets that we use for very specific situations. Uh, what a rule set is, is if you go onto Airbnb through a computer, not a phone, and you go to like airbnb.com forward slash multi-calendar, it can load all of your listings at once, right? Where normally your calendars, you look at it one listing at a time. Verbo doesn't have a multi-calendar yet, but as soon as they have a multi-calendar, it's game on, right? But right now, like with Verbo, you go to one listing, you see one calendar. So the multi-calendar gives you all of your listings at the same time. And to the right side where you just prices below your price box, there says create a rule set. And so what a rule set does is you click on a few cells. And because the way a multi-calendar is visualized is it's a bunch of cells. It's like a grid left to right, top to down, top down. And so it's like an Excel spreadsheet with all of your dates and prices. You can select dates, like just like an Excel spreadsheet, just should click a few days. And when you apply a rule set to those few days, those specific listings, those specific days, you can change things. Um, you can change the price up and down percentage-wise, solid dollar amount. You can change whether or not people can check in or check out that day. You can change the minimum night stay for just those days. You can automate price discounts where you can say, well, that day's 14 days in the future, but I'm going to make a rule set today so that way in a few days, the price starts to drop. And the price will drop from uh, like from 10 days out, it'll drop 10%. And then when it's only a week out, it'll drop 25. And if that day's still not booked three days from now, it'll drop another 30%. And you can automate like price drops through rule sets, which is really tight. And if you have big like monthly discounts, like, say like a 40% discount, or you have a big like weekly discount, like a 30% weekly discount, you all you manually drop your prices because like, oh, we're not going to get booked at our normal rate. So you've got your prices for like, say, slow season. And you don't want to give a 30% weekly discount just for those dates. You can use a rule set to erase any discounts that you would have in your listing. So it allows you to adjust listing specific static data, static information, but only apply it to very specific dates. So those are rule sets. And so yeah, with Wheelhouse, we might have a price where our prices are normally 250 bucks a night, but Wheelhouse is like, nope, you're going to get 90. I'm like, well, if we're going to get 90, do we want to get 50% off of 90? No, we don't. We just want 90 to be the final stop. So rule sets are how we kind of play that game. And then how are you generating new leads on the acquisition side? If I'm a landlord, why is it beneficial for you to rent my property versus a normal tenant? Well, how we're getting doors and why you should rent are two topic section. So I'll hit you with both. How we get doors, how we generate our leads. The way I teach my students is to actually just kind of walk in the front door of leasing offices or call landlords and offer to meet them at their place. That's like our, our normal outbound phone prospect. Haley does such a good job with operations though that when managers move buildings, they call her when they pick up a new building. They're like, hey, I just moved to this other building like in another neighborhood. Would you like to rent here? Or when a new property management company comes in, like Graystar takes over and then somebody else takes over after Graystar or whatever. And we keep like slushing through property management companies. Every time there's a new property management company, we have like a sit down. Like, hey guys, welcome to the building. We already have 15 doors here. We're so, so great to meet you. We're looking for more doors. And that's how that typically tends to work. But then Jason, he's based out of Washington State and he's out on the phone calling syndicates, calling big property management companies and working out these deals with developers and stuff like that. So he's like more at the developer level trying to nail down doors. And so he's actually got like 80 doors that we're picking up over the next eight weeks. 15 of them are in Baytown. 15 of them are in Waco. 40 of them are just on the west side of here of Houston, like on I-10. And I think either Waco or the one in Baytown, we are also going to pick up another 10 as long as everything goes good. So that's like 80 doors right there. But then he's got two other buildings here in Houston that we have, like we're trying to negotiate free run on. And then there's like a deal in Philly that'll give us 10 weeks of rent for free that we're still negotiating more doors on. And he has a developer in Austin where we, we've we taken 11 of what should be 39 doors. We still have to plan those other doors. Because he's on the phone just nailing big developers down, he's like, hey, I all of a sudden have like up to 150 doors for you. Can you take it? His is more like this like feast and famine cycle. He went seven months trying to get a deal. He couldn't, he couldn't shake down a single landlord for seven months. But Haley, like people are just switching buildings and they're calling Haley left and right. Go, hey, we love you at this building. Can you come here? So yeah, we're picking up our deals multiple ways. But first and 
from scratch who doesn't have any single doors. Yeah, I mean, I would just use Google Maps and just look up different apartment complexes. I'd probably focus on more B-class properties, stuff that's not prestigious because all the high rises in downtown, everybody's already called like a hundred times. What is a little guy with no doors really bring to the table there? But if you find some like near suburban B-class properties that are price competitive that the landlord hasn't considered it and you go and you make a good presentation to that landlord for that little multifamily, they'll give you doors, you know? And that's how I think somebody should start is get on the phone, but get on the phone to meet them at the property. And that's like really where most people make the mistake is they try to pitch through the phone or by email. It's probably the worst sales conversion ever is by like phone sales. There's so many no's on the phone. In person, you get a better conversion. You have 80 more doors coming on. Like, how are you going to furnish and design these properties? And they're in different markets too. So like explain that process. We've got a couple of guys from Dallas who are down here in Baytown right now working on these doors, but we actually partnered with a company called Bongo to give them a shot. They do some staging. There's also another company called Inhabitor that we gave a shot. They do rent to own. So we partnered with them because I was like, if this goes well, I'll probably do some content about them. I'll be honest, Inhabitor is a little expensive if you think about it. You're doing rent to own. So you're paying monthly payments over the course of like, say, two years, and then you own the furniture. Our monthly payments are probably like $340 per door. So for two years, though, 340 times 24, that's over 10 grand for a cheap studio worth of furniture, right? We had to pay like a $500 or $800 setup fee, setup fee in the first month, thing maybe $900 per door. So it would have been, it's $900 per door to set up instead of maybe say $4,000. So you're saving three grand up front on each door, but now that three grand you're saving, you're actually paying it triple. So Inhabitors is expensive because it does eat so much profit lifetime, but it allowed us to just nail some doors down. It was really cool to see. So I don't think we won't ever use Inhabitor ever again. We just have to be a little bit different about the terms that we set up with them because the, the cost of debt on that furniture is high. This Bongo company, we buy the furniture. They set it up and they charge us like $700, $700 per door. These are like studios, one bedroom, two bedroom? Yeah, the studios and one bed. If it was a bigger house, they probably would charge us like 1000 or 1100 something like that. So there are contractors that do that. I actually met another company on Instagram that does the same thing. They're coming out of the woodwork. So these staging contractors are available. There's another one that um, Sonder uses called Full House, F-U-L-H. H-A-U-S. And they try to do their own staging, failed and went back to full house again. So that was fun drama. And then Wayfair actually, if you have a Wayfair professional account, Wayfair business, they actually have a design module where you can actually upload your floor plan and start to design like and get like, and they actually have a dedicated designer because they want you to buy from Wayfair. So they're going to help you design the place using Wayfair stuff. And then you hit that buy button. They'll put everything in a warehouse somewhere until all this stuff is ready for delivery. And then they'll deliver you everything at once. They, they pretty much created a short-term rental arm at Wayfair. It's like one of their competitive things they're trying to do. Yeah, with 80 doors, we're using some contractors to, to kind of kill some of the workload, but we had, we have our own internal staff too that would just go blast down some doors. One challenge I think a lot of operators have is, is cleaners. So you're managing hundreds of different cleaners, I would imagine, across all your properties. How are you finding them and then hiring them to take on jobs hourly instead sure. of, you know, per door? Well, I'll say the most expensive hire you'll ever make is a stranger, somebody who don't know when you run a job ad. Because somebody who replies to a job that doesn't have a job, they're probably unemployable for a reason. And that's why they're looking around the job market. And they, they call those active applicants. An active applicant is somebody who's hunting for a job. A passive applicant is somebody who's employed. They've got a job. They don't need another one, but they're open-minded because they don't like the job that they're at. There's a YouTuber called Armin Trust, like Armin Van Buren and his last name's Trust starts with a T. He is the professor of human resources at some school in Europe and he puts all this courseware up. And so I started watching his human resources stuff, start to really learn to do a better job. So we run job ads. 
we kind of follow a, a, a model that he teaches in inside of his YouTube. And then uh, we spend a lot of money trying to hire housekeepers, but the people we hire are no experience. So like they could be food service workers, they could be custodians, um, they could be somebody's assistant, they could have been like a lifeguard, they could be anything. When we hire, we hire about between 12 and $15 an hour. So the people who apply to that job are people who want a job that pays 12 to 15, right? So we're still competitive for the the people that apply. You know, there's a lot of shakeout. There's a very low percentage of people that make it through that process. But once we find the good housekeepers through that process of grinding through applicants, we then incentivize those people to refer us more people. The easiest hires you'll ever get are referrals from your best employees. That's how you get good people. So we have referral incentives. We'll pay $500 or $1,000 per head for a referral if it's a good referral. I assume they have to stay a certain amount of time. Yeah, we pay we pay the, uh, the referral bonuses in chunks based on like as people stay, we just pay it out chunks to not dump a thousand bucks and have somebody quit the next day. So Haley on your team, she's handling all guest communications. Is that correct? Haley manages the people that do. I think there's a girl named Spencer and a girl named Melissa. Spencer might be the one who's in charge of like operations type of guest communications, like the, the logistics of it all. But Melissa is in charge of guest experience. So, um, and that's actually a really fun distinction. We hired this position um, a little, maybe a, just, just under a year ago. Uh, what was happening is Haley was getting burned out with guests. Constantly doing dumb stuff, asking for refunds, threatening bad reviews if we didn't do something for them. And she just had such a level of distrust because there's just so many bad guests out there that you just, you remember the bad ones. You don't remember the good ones. And so she starts, no was our default answer. Whenever a guest wanted anything, no was the default answer. And that was too operations minded, too unempathetic. So we promoted Melissa from a customer service position to a guest experience manager. And it's her job to assume that the guest is always innocent, always good, deserves everything they ask for. So she goes to Haley and basically goes to war with Haley on behalf of our guests. And now our guests, our guest relationships are so fun because a guest is like, thank you so much, Melissa, for like going to bat for me. She's like, hey, I'm going to try to get you what you asked for from my company that I work for. So they feel represented. Reviews went up. We actually had a run of really bad reviews at this time when Haley was like saying, no, our five-star review count dropped like below 70%. Then it went right up to like 95 or 96% when Melissa started representing our guests like that. So Melissa runs guest experience, reviews and resolutions. I think Spencer handles like the, hey, welcome to our place. Your arrival's in a couple of days. If you need anything, I'm here for you. Like she runs that team. And Haley, of course, manages them all. We are thrilled to announce Blue Gems Management. After building out 24 short-term rental properties of our own, we're now helping other investors buy their time back. With over 300 five-star reviews, we really understand the importance of guest experience. If you're interested in making short-term rentals passive, click the link in the show notes below and someone from our team will contact you soon. Now back to the show. Here at this conference, we've been hearing all types of like new strategies or relatively new stra mm -hmm. strategies, right? Converting hotels into these mm. beautiful STRs, Peer Space by Chris Senegal, all these awesome, interesting ideas. Are you doing anything different or are you staying streamlined at what you're well, good at? Actually, I've got my penthouses on Peer Space. Okay. And I actually made $4,000 in a day once off of that, which is good. Here in Houston? Dallas, my Dallas. penthouse is in Dallas. So yeah, I do some Peer Space. I bought a bus. I'm going to convert a bus into an Airbnb. I, I'm doing a trash job of that though. I'm really, <laughs> sorry. I'm so bad at it. I used to do masonry, roofing, carpentry as like a teenage kid because I grew up in a really poor Wisconsin town. And like, that's the job you got in the summer was like, like hacking wood and pouring concrete. So I knew enough to, to tear out all the seats and put in the subfloor. So the bus has a subfloor, laminate flooring. Cool. If I left it like that, people are like, hey, you got a really cool empty bus. But the moment I try to start putting in like water lines, electricity, solar, put in like a toilet, shower, 
it looks like a seven-year-old made his own treehouse in there. Like, it's so bad. <laughs> that would be me. Yeah. For sure. And I accidentally removed the braces for the windows because I was reading like a how to do a bus conversion thing. I'm just reading this blog. And they're like, remove everything. So I start removing everything. And there's these vertical metal black bars that I thought needed to get removed too because they're, they're like, you're going to spray insulate. So you're going to remove everything. Well, those vertical black bars actually hold the windows in place. So I'm driving down the highway to go, we're going to go to EDC. Uh, we oh, we wow. took my bus to EDC and then lightning in a bottle. And on the way to Vegas, the wind blows the windows in on the bus while it's going 65 miles an hour. And all the windows start falling in. And I'm like, oh, this is bad. And so like, I'm like, I'm trying to find a way to screw wood slats up to hold these windows in. The wood, the bus just looked gypsy and jank so fast. So now it's a problem. So I need to find a way to fix that. The Airbnb conversion is going to be pretty darn delayed. But I am trying new stuff just for the sake of, I think more so my audience because... You know, I don't need to try anything new per se. I kind of, right. I kind of enjoy just being like on chill mode for once in my life because I was a workaholic my whole life. Um, so I'm doing stuff more so for content. But yeah, we we do do peer space. We were doing a schooly conversion, and we are now actually co-hosting, which is which is actually still a distinction. We're doing we're doing some co-hosting now because it's just a smart move. It's easy money. How are you getting those clients? I guess because I'm famous. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> pretty pretty Fam- simple. Famous in the Airbnb space. Yeah, and a lot of my friends bought houses. My best friend's a real estate agent. Sold about twenty something homes in West Dallas, and they're all in Airbnb. And you know they have their own co-hosts, but they're not happy with their own co-hosts sometimes. And they hit me up for advice. I give them advice, and they're like, "Hey, do you co-host? Like, if I'm going to give anybody advice on how to pick up co-hosting deals, be the subject matter expert in a community in short-term rentals. Start going to REI connection events. Start going to meetup groups for real estate. Start just workshopping with landlords that buy properties, and just be the short-term rental expert in your group. Give value. They're going to come to you with questions, and then one day they're like, "Hey, thank you so much for answering all my questions. I want to do short-term rentals, but I still just don't want to do any of the work. Can you be my co-host?" Easy way to pick up those deals. So you've seen a pretty big impact from content creation. Can you talk about how long that journey has been and some of the challenges there? It's impactful in a bunch of different ways. I guess the question is, how do you mean if you if you had a specific way that you meant that? So growing an audience, right? So getting attention, your your followers, your connections, I'm sure it leads to some deal flow as well. Just overall, how it's impacted your business. My guy, Jason, is now using the fact that I'm kind of famous when pitching some developers because the developers want to use my clout to convince syndications to invest. So that could actually be something that happens. A lot of people started picking up properties in the same buildings as me. So me, like Houston got a bunch of people started on Airbnb back in 2017, 18, like 19. When I was making content in Houston, I think I kind of caused a little bit of like a (laughs) spike, right? (laughs) So then of course I'm creating my own competition. So how my content has definitely increased my, the amount of competition that I have. But my content also forces me to think about things, which has made me a better business owner. Like a lot of my pricing strategy comes from, because I wanted to teach it, I wanted to make it simple, but now I can train my own people on pricing strategy because I had to find a way to make it digestible. So making content helped me become a better educator. And being an educator, I think is important for being like, you know, a like a CEO of a company who needs to create the systems to to automate. So I think that's how content has really affected my business. It hasn't led to some like really sick amount of deal flow because I, I don't prospect for deals through my YouTube. I'm not taking investors. Well, not yet anyway. I don't I don't have a syndicate yet where a lot of people do. I just don't have that stuff. My content's always been for the little guy, the person who can't give me anything. I'm like, hey, poor person. I was poor. Let's get you not being poor either. Let, let's do this. So sure, there's some 
rich people. I remember there's a guy who came to me. He's like, hey, I would like to invest in some Airbnbs, blah, blah, blah. And I handed them to one of my students because I just, I wasn't interested. I'm like, I'm just doing my own thing. Now this guy and him, like he's, he has a group of people that they've bought like 60 or 70 houses. And so my student's like, dude, like I make a million dollars net profit from this referral you gave me a year. He's like, if there's wow. anything you need ever, thank you so much. <laughs> right. I'm like, wow, I probably should not let that one go. But, but it's just the point is like, I've never really tried to wrench my audience into deal flow in that space because my whole content was just to prove that something was possible. And so, yeah, in a way, I'm a trash influencer like that. I really could be making like money in like weird other ways through the content, capitalizing deal flow, getting more doors, stuff like that. I could do I could do a public call on YouTube like, hey, everybody, we're looking to co-host, reach out, right? I could do that and probably pick up a lot of houses. Sure. I've just never, I've never really wanted to reap that, you know, I didn't want to cut that wheat on the channel. How many uh, hours a week do you allocate towards content, if you don't mind me um, asking? It's just run and gun. Like if I'm in the mood to shoot, I shoot. I've got very specific life philosophies around this, which is don't do anything you don't want to do is a rule of mine. Just every day, just do, don't do what you don't want to do. So I'll go weeks and weeks and weeks without shooting something because I don't feel like it, but then I'll get all ADHD and one day I'll like shoot a bunch of videos. I have a content team in Croatia that edits my videos for me. So I'll put up a camera and I'll turn it on. I'll just start talking for 22, 25 minutes and I send them that video. And then that's the videos that you guys see on YouTube. I put about 20 to 30 minutes per video and um, I'm, Actually, I want to increase my production quality though and just stop. That's one thing I want to change is I'll turn the camera on, talk, be done, turn it off and send it where now I want to start planning things out a little bit more to be a little bit more creative, a little bit more entertaining, a little bit more inviting, inclusive. So I'll probably be like doing more shots where I'm somewhere shooting and then somewhere else shooting and maybe try to do more stuff. So my time per video, I want to maybe dedicate two to four hours per video of my time. Most, at most probably. I think four hours should be definitely sufficient because what you guys are seeing now is me putting in 20 to 30 minutes. Yeah, that's wild. Yeah. So it's efficient. Yeah, it is efficient. <laughs> really, really. That can be a cool thing if that's your brand. And my brand is like, oh yeah, Sean's smart, right? He's that smart guy who talks about Airbnb. Cool. Right. But he's not the smart, fun, entertaining, like, wow, he's so savage, makes the best jokes. Right. Like that doesn't really sure. Um, I would like to be that guy who makes savage <laughs> jokes, but I think it might be bad for my brand because I'll probably offend some people if I have like savage dark humor on my on my YouTube channel. Uh, but I was like an emo kid in like college. <laughs> I was in a screamo band playing guitar. Seriously? Just, like, yeah, I was a total thrash kid. So yeah, I still have that like personality back there and I like hide that kid away. But yeah, so I want to be more myself on the YouTube channel and do more fun stuff. But yeah, it is efficient. Like if I just, I just know there's something I can talk about. Like, oh, right now let's talk about what Airbnb just did with their policy change or their algorithm change or how that affects your listing. And I just know all the stuff because I live that life, turn on the camera for 20 minutes, talk and be done. It is really efficient if, but that pigeonholes your brand and like, oh, he's that textbook guy. If I want to know something, I'll just search it there. But does it make somebody want to like get to know me? Does it make some them care about like my past or my future? No. Like I did a video how my mentor committed suicide and almost nobody watched that video, right? I'll do a video like what furniture to buy for your Airbnb, like whether or not this furniture is good because like stains and stuff and what's durable, that video will get a quarter million views. But like personal life, that YouTube channel is not for that. It's crazy. So would you go back and do it differently if you can restart your brand? Oh, that's a good question. I think the my motive for starting the channel was to prove that something was possible. And if I went back and I changed why, it would probably go completely differently. And it might not even be, it might not even be a channel that people talk about today. So that's the trade-off that I think I have to be happy to accept. I think the channel has done great for people like it was supposed to. Then do it to get like famous or to be like, cool, I don't want to be Logan Paul or whatever. And that's why it is what it is. So now if I want to change that, if I want people to actually care about who I am, I've got to slowly change my content and like, hey guys, I'm a human too, you know? So it is something that's like, I'm as a, as a creative artist, because I went to music school, like I dropped out of music school to get into sales. As a creative artist, I want to be creative. I want to be artistic. I want to express myself. My, my YouTube channel is not really for that, but I hope to change it 
maybe a little bit. So what are some of your hobbies? I mean, you have a lot of free time now with the operations mm-hmm. kind of taking over. So like, what are you up to? I have been doing a lot of traveling, a lot of international travel. I just got back from Canada. I went up to Canada for an event called Shambhala. It's a music festival. And then we went through Banff for like a couple of weeks. Banff and Jasper did some wildlife photography, some landscapes, even like took a helicopter and found a way to like get some landscapes out, out the helicopter. And what's really hard about this is when I do my landscapes, I take multiple photos and I stitch them together so I can have a jumbo print. So my photos are like 500 megapixels, some crazy amount. But when a helicopter is flying 100 knots and you take multiple photos, the perspective changes so you can't stitch them together. So to get these shots to stitch, I had to take so much footage to try to get these shots to work. I got some really excellent ones. So photography is a big thing for me. I love to cook. So I'll host like house parties. I like I like hosting. So I'll host like a party. Um, I hosted a gothic formal for my birthday. <laughs> and uh, everybody dressed up like old, awesome. like we're like talking like vampiric era or like re- Renaissance Gothic. And then I, I actually cooked my own red velvet cake. I actually took two weeks to learn how to bake. And I made like this gigantic 10 layer cake for a hundred people. And then um, of course I cooked hors d'oeuvres and all that stuff. So I like to cook I, any, anything art. So I, I bought a grand piano for my living room so I can start playing piano again. I just bought a bunch of new music equipment, like studio equipment to start recording again. And then of course traveling and photography. And then of course I love the gym. The gym's been my friend lately, so... It's incredible. Love it. It's good times. So we have a lot of rookie investors on the, on the cool. show. So what would be your advice for someone just starting out as a brand new potential Airbnb investor, short-term rental investor? Well, my advice is to not be an investor, but be an operator, right? Would be my advice. And that's a distinction too. So if somebody's a rookie investor, they have the capital to invest and they don't want to do the work that's different than somebody who wants to get in the space and like build a business. So do you want sure. to build an investment portfolio or build a business? And I think people should draw a line down the middle and decide which path they want to take. That's probably going to be my first advice is like actually choose your path. Because if you build a business, I mean, you're going to spend money on furniture. You're going to do the work, the time. You're going to hire housekeepers like we talked about. And then at that point, there will be investors coming to you, giving you deal flow because you're the operator. Now, if you're the investor, you need to find a good operator. And that's the thing is like, can be expensive. And I would say right now, I don't know if buying single family is the best move right now because, you know, they, we could see a backslide maybe. I'm Again, I'm not a real estate guy, so I can't really like crystal ball that. But from the people I talk to, multifamily properties behave differently. So there might be good multifamily deals out there because somebody had low occupancy. They didn't take care of the building. So if somebody's looking to be an investor in short-term rentals, I'd say get involved with a syndication that buys like distressed multifamily and then try to get a partner that knows how to operate some Airbnbs and get them involved. That's probably probably what I would do if I was a new investor. And then when you're not traveling, what does a day in the life look like? So I don't sleep with an alarm clock. That's, a, I think, one of, one of my biggest things. That That is the definition of freedom to me. I just wake up when the body wakes up. <laughs> so I'll wake up, I go and get my coffee. I go down my elevator, really cool chick named Shay gives me my, my coffee. I go upstairs, I clean my kitchen in the morning. So I also have this really weird, there's a phrase for this in both Italian and Spanish, which is basically when you're hosting, when you're cooking for people or you're having dinner, the table's meant for making memories, fellowship, having fun. So like if I cook for people at night, I don't do the dishes until the next morning. So my morning ritual is wake up when the body wakes up, gets coffee, do my kitchen chores, get my second coffee. And then once I have my second coffee, I go to the gym. So that's kind of like my morning routine. Sometimes I make content. Sometimes I don't. Sometimes I watch anime. Sometimes I don't. <laughs> sometimes I play music. Sometimes I don't. So, and every day is just, I'm in, I'm a, basically, I don't have a plan any day of the week now. I'm just in flow state. And that's, I've tried so hard to get into just flow state in life. Yeah, that's beautiful, man. Yeah. Good Amazing. for you. So last question, if you could leave the audience with any blue gym, it could be about life, it could be about real estate, it could be about operations, anything that you want to share with them. I was going to give people something that they could actually use and hold on to. 
and it may only resonate with a small percentage of your audience. So I guess it is what it is, but people tend to need a catalyst before they really change their life for the better. A lot of people are, you know, they call it being plugged into the matrix or they're asleep. You know how people use the phrase, a lot of people are asleep right now. I mean, a lot of times people are asleep until something happens. And usually it's a bad thing that gets people to wake up. Like for me, I went homeless in 2009. If I didn't go homeless and then have to like steal groceries, like from a Randall's, I sold bagels, like from a Randall's grocery store to survive. If I didn't end up back in such a heavy survival state where the world like really let me down, I would not have been the guy who's willing to do anything to get out of that situation. And I would have never really discovered my power, right? So I'm not saying go seek a situation that puts you in such a traumatic experience that it wakes you up. But a lot of people in life have already had those experiences and they need to go back and think on those experiences that they've had. And of course, first off, don't feel bad that you've ever had a bad experience, like where like you had a divorce or you got really, really sick because you were being stupid with your body or you went homeless at one point in time or something like that, or you lost your big career because your company basically just used you up and threw you away. A lot of us have had those experiences. You can either let those experiences leave you jaded with trauma, or you can let those experiences wake you up to the more primal part of yourself. Because back in the day, we had to fight to survive on the daily. There's things on this planet that would kill us every day. If it wasn't the weather, it was a lion. If it wasn't a lion, it's probably some exotic insect that could probably kill you too. There's probably insects more lethal than like traffic right now, right? Like what's the worst part of our life standing in line at the DMV or choosing what's for lunch? We are so sedated because our, our genetic code is built to survive, right? That's what we are built for. And we're in a world that we don't have to survive anymore. We're lazy, we're sleepy, we're, we're just full of bad habits, you know? And that's probably the most dangerous part of being alive today is how easy it is to pick up bad habits because how safe bad habits are right now. And then you, have, you live in this permanent coffin of bad habits and you just die one day. Like a fraction of who you could have been in life because you, you're on TikTok, right? And you drink and like all these different things. But back in the day when we had to survive, we didn't have time for bad habits because we're just trying to stay alive. And so if people want to succeed in life, they need to get close to that fire, close to that I need to survive. So people do like cold plunges, right? Like that whole like, the what do they call that? Um, thermogenesis, where your cells, you like really hot and then really cold and it puts your cells in a survival state. Or people do like multi-day fasting because it puts your body in a survival state. Or people do like the Wim Hof breath work and hold their breath for a long time. Puts you in a survival state, um, hypooxidization or whatever they call it. There are so many things that we can do today to trick our body into thinking that it needs to survive. And if we do those types of things on the daily, you're you're just way more prepared for life. You're all of a sudden more motivated. The things that stress you out all of a sudden are trivial. You're like, oh, I can't believe that actually even got under my skin ever. That's like the stupidest thing, you know? So if people can go back and go, hey, I had a near-ish death experience, right? Or I have something I've got a lot of shame because I was like the lowest point of myself. If they can go back and remember what it's like to fight their way out of that pit, that's the energy you need that fight your way out of the pit energy, like Bane and the Dark Knight Returns, right? Getting out of that pit. That is that energy you need. Because so many people out here are on easy mode and you wonder how why everybody else is so successful is because they ignored the fact that they could be on easy mode and they chose a different way. And if you're having a hard time getting out of easy mode because life is so good, go do something that makes your body go, hey, we're under attack. Like a cold plunge or Wim Hof's breath work, just stuff, stuff like that. You don't actually have to go homeless to, to trick your body into thinking it. Love that, man. Yeah, I think that's going to resonate for sure. Dude, thank you so much. Thank man. you so really much, appreciate, brother. It. appreciate it. Yeah. Happy Amazing. to be here, guys. Amazing cool. episode, man. If you're interested in scaling your short-term rental portfolio and networking with like-minded individuals, we host a short-term rental meetup once a month in downtown Orlando. Click our link below in the show notes to register. See you at the next one. JB dropping blue gems. AG dropping blue gems. New podcast, baby, tune in. We in this thing dropping blue gems.